You're listening to Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. Are the Founding Fathers of America limited to those who signed the Declaration of Independence? Or those revolutionary colonists whose names have made it into the history books? One Harvard professor argues that we ought to consider at least one more Founding Father, a black Massachusetts man named Prince Hall. Danielle Allen is the James Bryant Conant University Professor at Harvard, and she joins me now to tell his story. Welcome to Constant Wonder. Thank you so much, Tenere. Good to be here. Now, I had never heard of Prince Hall until I came across an article you wrote about him in The Atlantic. Uh, When did you hear about him? I first learned about Prince Hall shortly after I published a book on the Declaration of Independence in 2014. And I was hosting a lot of conferences about the Declaration and really asking people to dig into the language of the text. And somebody called my attention to Prince Hall, a free African-American in Boston in the late 18th century. And in January of 1777, Prince Hall, working with others, submitted a petition to the Massachusetts Assembly arguing for the abolition of enslavement. And he drew on the language of the Declaration of Independence to do that. Um, So that was when I first learned about Prince Hall. Um, He was one of the first people to use the Declaration of Independence for a political purpose other than revolution. Yet in all of my time researching on the Declaration of Independence for my book, I had not come across him. So this is really pretty recently for you, and you are a a historian. Yes. Um, So Prince Hall is a person who does not get the attention that he deserves. So I don't think that in any of the books that have been written by leading scholars around the Declaration of Independence over the last few decades, he has showed up. So this is, in fact, the first when I published an article about him in The Atlantic, um, that is the first time his name had appeared in the pages of The Atlantic in all of its history. Mm. Although he was a father of abolition, as well as being just a really important political actor in Boston in the 1770s and 1780s. Well, so it's a real case of a hidden hidden narrative. Right. What What do we know about his birth, his occupation, family life, um, just the details of the man? Well, he was probably born in Boston in the 1730s, around 1735, and lived until 1807. He was enslaved in the earlier part of his life. He had his freedom formally granted in 1770. He may have lived as a free person prior to that point. He had training as a printer to some extent. He also ultimately was a tradesman uh, running a shop. And he was a very influential political leader in the African-American community in Boston. And you mentioned that in 1777, he wrote a petition to the Massachusetts legislature um, arguing for emancipation. Um, I'd like you to tell us a little bit uh, more about that. And you said he used language from the Declaration of Independence. Maybe you could quote that just briefly for us. Sure, absolutely. In arguing against enslavement, he wrote that the Blacks in, in his vocabulary in the state of Massachusetts have in common, quote, have in common with all other men, a natural and unalienable right to that freedom, which the great parent of the universe hath bestowed equally on all mankind. That language is directly connected to the language in the Declaration, the famous, we hold these truths to be self-evident, sentence where nearly all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So that language would have been immediately recognized by his audience, knowing what he was referencing. Okay. Absolutely. Exactly. And um, was he, but he wasn't the first black to petition for emancipation in Massachusetts. No. So there had been building work um, over the period Um, of the 1770s of people petitioning for broad emancipation, making specific petitions for emancipation as well. And Prince Hall was really somebody who collaborated with others who was working to build political alliances. There were petitions put forward in 1773 and 1774 by African-Americans in Bristol and Worcester counties, um, also some in Boston. And so when Hall uh, worked with others to put forward the petition in 1777. They were building on that pre-existing work. Indeed, the work continued. They didn't win at that point in time, and it wasn't until 1783 that the project of independence 
um, or rather emancipation um, was completed in Massachusetts. Although it's important to say that that abolition of enslavement, which did um, occur in Massachusetts by 1783, did come even before the end of the Revolutionary War. Mm. And, and during that six years between his petition and when um, emancipation was legislated in Massachusetts, was was there stiff opposition? Did he have broad support? I mean, you said he didn't get it right away. I mean, it wasn't granted right away. Well, again, lots of people were working on emancipation. And there are a lot of different parts of the story. So one important part of the story is the state constitution which was ratified in 1780. John Adams was a key drafter of that constitution. He had also been a key drafter of the Declaration of Independence. Um, we do really owe the language in the declaration that was supportive of abolition and emancipation to Adams. Adams never owned people. He was against enslavement and he and Abigail hired free black laborers as a part of what they did um, mm. in running a household. Um, so, when Adams drafted the Massachusetts Constitution, he also drew on the language of the Declaration of Independence, exactly the same language about inalienable rights. And it is that language, ultimately, that became the basis for the Supreme Court equivalent in Massachusetts making a decision in 1783 that uh, enslavement violated the state constitution. So there was a clear network of conversation in Boston, in Massachusetts, about abolition that anchored its work in the ideas and language of the Declaration of Independence. And then those ideas found their way into legal form in the form of the Constitution. Then enslaved people used the Constitution to sue for their freedom. And then, mm -hmm. uh, as I said, the court itself ruled that indeed the Constitution made enslavement unconstitutional. Mm. Now, I understand that Freemasonry and the Masonic Lodge are important to this story. Would you explain that? Sure. So in that period in the 1770s, as Prince Hall was working to build up political voice and influence for African-Americans in Boston, um, he uh, seems to have acquired the view that one way to do that was to form um, a lodge, a Freemason's Lodge. Um, as current Masonic historians point out, Freemasonry was seen as a way in which um, men um, in that colonial period did acquire social influence, social capital and the like. It was basically a sort of networking strategy or a sort of club strategy. And um, Prince Hall seems to have sought, first of all, to uh, set up a lodge connected to one of the existing white lodges in Massachusetts, but uh, was turned back or turned away by them. And so during the Revolutionary War, he did find some British soldiers who were Masons who were willing to initiate him uh, and uh, his um, associates um, into a new African-American Masonic Lodge. and But these soldiers couldn't grant him permission to found a, a freestanding lodge, could they? I mean, didn't, did he have to go higher up? Well, they could, in, they initiated him, right? Mm -hmm. So they were, they sort of conducted the, the ritual practices of right. a Masonic Lodge and that, so Prince Hall and his colleagues, 14 others, consider that the beginning of their lodge, they did have to seek a charter. And so that okay. uh, they did by writing to the sort of central authorities for Freemasonry in Britain. Um, and then they did receive a, a grant of a formal charter in the 1780s. So they were operating as a, as a lodge before they received mm -hmm. that formal mm -hmm. charter from the UK. And, and just as a side note, you mentioned um, Revolutionary War soldiers. Um, Interesting that he was initiated by British soldiers. Is that what you said? Right, exactly. Yes. I mean, this is an important part of American history that, you know, at the point of the revolution, the questions of sort of who was where on issues of enslavement were extremely complicated. Um, so there were parts of our the revolutionary context in which um, the British were much more supportive of emancipation for African Americans than Americans were. And so mm. Um, there are African-Americans who fought on the American side in the revolution, but there were also African-Americans who went over to the British side on the expectation that that would be a faster route to freedom. And did he fight on either side, Prince Hall? Um, that There's a real question about that. There's evidence that his son did fight um, on the American side, um, but not for Prince Hall himself. Okay. All right. Well, I want to get back to Freemasonry because we're not quite done with that part of the story. There. You mentioned in your Atlantic article a story about some black men who 
were members and their membership actually helped to free them once when they were in a kidnapping situation. Can you explain and tell us that story? Sure. Well, so there is exactly this uh, period of time where uh, Massachusetts has ended enslavement and therefore also becomes um, a safe harbor, a place that people can go if they escape from enslavement to be free. And in that period of time, of course, there was also developing practice um, of of those who were traffickers um, in human beings of um, kidnapping free black people and taking them someplace else and then selling them um, into enslavement. Mm. So uh, basically people, free African-Americans were vulnerable to kidnap of the kind, people may remember the the film, you know, 12 Years a Slave, right? right? That's an example of that kind of story. And in 1788, this was a sort of, a, a, there was a, you know, a fair amount of activity around this in Boston, Boston Harbor, people being kidnapped and taken away. And so uh, there's some stories in the newspaper of a group of men who are, who are kidnapped from Boston and then escaped um, from the kidnap because in the process of interacting with their kidnappers, uh, the kidnappers discovered that the men were members of the Masons. And then that was the proof that they were free. Uh, the kidnappers too mm. were participants in Freemasonry. And so one presumes there was some kind of exchange of ritual symbols or whatever, but the men make it back to Boston. And so then they, Prince Hall leads them around Boston society, having them tell their story um, about what had happened to them. This is an effort to get the legislature to protect people from being kidnapped in this way and to penalize those who are doing this kidnapping. But it was also an effort to really underscore the importance of that Masonic membership um, to show people how this you know, participation in this world of ritual, this world of social practice linked, um, you know, the, in effect, elite white men and elite, elite black men um, in the city of Boston. If you're just joining us here on Constant Wonder, our guest is Danielle Allen of Harvard, and she's telling us the story of Prince Hall. Um, once he gets his uh, Masonic Lodge up and running, Prince Hall walks with uh, with the members in St. John's Day Parade. Tell me why that's so significant. Well, again, I mean, so this is, we sometimes lose track of all the sort of details of um, racial domination that characterize our early history and forget you know, just sort of how tight um, the regime of surveillance was, even in places of freedom. So again, Massachusetts emancipated um, African-Americans in by 1783, yet there were nonetheless um, real uh, sort of uh, practices of surveillance, again, because uh, people from other contexts who were trafficking in, in human beings were uh, constantly trying to claim that they needed to sort of take back a fugitive slave um, and whatnot. So there was sort of intensive surveillance um, over time. And so one of the things that membership in the Masonic Lodge um, made possible for African-Americans was uh, just sort of permission to, uh, to do big public gatherings and without being um, subject to you know, any kind of attack or anybody uh, sort of trying to um, take advantage of, of the occasion to say check papers or something like that. So mm -hmm. in other words, they were given permission to, to do a, a walk on, on what was called St. John's Day, which was a, a, a holiday, a holy day. And the purpose of this was for funeral practices. And so it's a part of the beginning of a kind of culture of, of large funeral processions um, to celebrate um, the burial of important people in the community. Mm. Is his Masonic Lodge still around today? It is, yep. It still exists um, in, in here in Boston. It's still functioning. That is to say it, is, it has an active membership. It has been, it is still um, led by a group of people who are really committed to the African-American community in Boston and to delivering um, important social goods and public goods um, to the African-American community. And I understand that your family history intersects with Prince Hall's legacy. Will you tell us about that? Sure. Yes. And that was definitely one of the funny parts of working on this project is that, you know, here I am, I'm African-American. I've been studying history for, you know, a long time. When I was a kid in high school, I used to do things like put up Black History Month exhibits. So this is an area of, you know, it's been constant sort of area of interest and study for me, um, you know, more or less my whole life. And then 
here I was in my 40s, having published this book on the Declaration of Independence, and for the first time discovering this person called Prince Hall, who made such a tremendous difference for our country and its history. And I was just really shocked by the fact that I had never actually heard of him previously and was mentioning this to my dad. And my dad said, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, your granddad was a member of the Prince Hall Masons. So <laughs> turns out, you know, it was right there under my nose the entire time. And oh. I, I missed it. So. Now, everything wasn't rosy for Prince Hall. Um, I understand he got kind of frustrated at, at some points and got involved with the Back to Africa movement. Exactly. Yes. I mean, so emancipation, legal freedom was not at the end of the day, uh, the end of the work of really securing empowerment for African Americans in uh, Boston, Massachusetts. So there were great struggles to get full rights. I mean, in some sense, the, the story of, of needing a charter to process in the streets, needing permission to process in the streets is an example of how there were still very significant constraints, um, even after emancipation. And members of the African-American community became very frustrated with whether it would be possible for them to actually have opportunity, opportunity to build economically, opportunity to develop educational um, chances and resources and the like. And so um, had a debate uh, in the Masonic Lodge about whether or not to uh, pursue an effort to return to Africa, to just give up um, on, on the United States. And indeed decided to go forward with this effort and sought um, financial support from the Massachusetts legislature for doing that. Um, at the end of the day, this was another, another petition Prince Hall did not succeed with. The uh, legislature did not uh, choose to provide that support. And ultimately, Prince Hall and his colleagues focused their attention instead on building schools um, and securing educational resources uh, to support the education of the African-American community in Boston. And how did that go? It's a work in progress, I think. 250 years later, it's a work <laughs> in progress. Massachusetts has some of the best public schools in the country, yet we also have some of the most significant educational inequities, and those inequities continue to track uh, racial lines. So it certainly was an important um, early effort to achieve uh, full equality and emancipation through education, but you know, it's a sad thing to say that the work is very much still unfinished. And I guess you've kind of joined in the effort um, with a middle school curriculum that that features Hall. Will you tell us briefly about that? Sure. So two years ago or three years ago, I guess, 2018, the Massachusetts Department of Elementary and Secondary Education passed new state standards for history and social studies that made a requirement for a year-long grade eight civics curriculum. And the curriculum has a sort of set of texts that need to appear and it also has a set of goals for the curriculum. And those goals include that students learn about a diversity of perspectives. Um, but there's sort of a paradox in the standards because the list of texts that's required um, is exclusively a list authored by men and white men. So although there's this aspiration that students be exposed to diversity of perspectives, um, the texts that were made available to do that don't actually support that. Um, so. However, um, one of the uh, really interesting things about Prince Hall is that in his petitions, in his writing, he was making use of a lot of the texts um, that are actually required in Massachusetts state standards. So the standards require Aristotle, they require Locke, they require Montesquieu, they require the Declaration of Independence, for example. And these are all sources uh, that Prince Hall had in, you know, that were infusing his writing and his thinking. So it turned out we realized that we could teach the content of the standards, those required texts, by teaching uh, the story of Prince Hall's life and uh, teaching not just what he did, not how, not just how he lived, but also how he was drawing on those intellectual um, traditions and sources for his own effort to craft a path of emancipation. So we do have a unit on Prince Hall that we use to teach about the philosophical foundations of democracy. Mm -hmm. Danielle Allen is the James Bryant Conant University Professor at Harvard. Thank you so much for sharing the story of Prince Hall with us today. Thanks a lot, Tenery. Glad, glad to be with you. Appreciate the interest. This is Constant Wonder. I'm Tenery Taylor. And I'm Marcus Smith. Contemporary with Prince Hall was a man named Joseph Warren, who in that same year, 1775, that Prince Hall was looking for admission to a Masonic lodge, 
This Joseph Warren was killed, a very important general in the American Revolutionary War story. We're going to learn more about him next, coming up on Constant Wonder. You're listening to Constant Wonder. The road to human rights was not always parallel with the road to independence, but these roads do relate to each other. For another significant biography from this era, Tenery Taylor had a chance to speak with Christian Despina. He is author of Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Lost Hero. Before there was George Washington, there was Dr. Joseph Warren. And for 10 years leading up to the independence movement, Warren was one of the most important radical leaders pushing for resistance against oppressive British policies. And the road to independence probably would not have been as carved out as it was had it not been for Warren. So he is a prominent activist, Sons of Liberty. He's involved in every major insurrectionary event in the town of Boston, which is really a microcosm of the revolution between 1765 and 1775. He becomes president of the Massachusetts Provincial Congress, head of its Committee of Safety. He becomes the Grand Master of ancient Scottish Rite Masons in North America. He and, and why is that stuff. important? Remind us the importance well, of Masons. It's important because the Masons were heavily involved in revolutionary activity. They were involved in the planning of the destruction of the tea, which is now known as the Boston Tea Party. When you look at most of the founding fathers, you'll realize that many of them were Masonic members. And and Masonry was important back then because it was not only a fraternal organization, but they were heavily involved in charity and, like I mentioned, heavily involved in revolutionary activity. A lot of the planning for these uh, revolutionary events that transpired in Boston happened at the Green Dragon Tavern, which is where they held their Masonic meetings. And, you know, beyond that, like I said, Warren is the author of the Suffolk Resolves, which was the precursor document to the Declaration of Independence that he authors in September of 1774. He is at the head of a vast intelligence network. He dispatches Paul Revere and William Dawes on their midnight rides. He's appointed a major general three days before the Battle of Bunker Hill. He's involved in every major battle and skirmish in what has come to be called the 60 days, right, the period between Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. And when you think about that period and you think about the founding fathers, where were they? They were in Philadelphia at the Continental Congress. Warren becomes the on-the-ground leader. You know, he's spearheading this resistance movement. He delivers two fiery Boston massacrations. Like I said, he's involved in every major insurrectionary event in that town of Boston for the 10 years leading up to independence. And, and we're going to tease out all those, those stories that you mentioned. I wonder, uh, what did the British think of him? Well, I mean, one British commander refers to him as the greatest incendiary in all America, right? Not Samuel Adams, not John Hancock, Dr. Joseph Warren. Uh, When Warren's killed, the uh, royal governor um, of Boston, who had gone back to London, says that had Warren lived, he would have become the Cromwell of North America. The lieutenant governor of Massachusetts, when Warren was active, uh, Peter Oliver, said that had Warren lived, Washington's name would have been in obscurity. So when you realize the main players who were the loyalists in the town of Boston at this time realize that Warren is one of the major revolutionaries who's pushing for independence. Well, why don't we learn about him alongside Paul Revere and Sam Adams and these other famous figures? And this is really the anomaly, but to, to try and condense it. So there's a number of reasons. Some are inexplicable, but one Warren's killed at the young age of 34 years old at the Battle of Bunker Hill on June 17, 1775. And because of his activities as a spymaster and an intelligence network leader, he destroys most of his papers. Um, Both of his sons die in their early 20s without children, so he doesn't leave that male legacy. And when you think about it, he's killed a year before the Declaration of Independence. So... He's not part of this later triumphalist phase 
of this grand uh, celebratory America, such as most of the founding fathers we associate with today, right? Usually one of them has had to have signed either the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, but Warren misses out on this. And really what happens is on this day, this Battle of Bunker Hill, June 17, 1775, when Warren is killed, it's this one single afternoon that overshadows his 10 years of resistance activity so that when he is remembered at all, it's either as, oh, yes, he, he's the general who's killed at Bunker Hill or he's the guy who sent Revere on his midnight ride. He becomes the first American hero and martyr because prior to that, the hero in the colonies was a British general, James Wolfe who's killed during the French and Indian War. So, again, it's somewhat of a betrayal because, again, this one battle overshadows his entire life, and his papers are later destroyed into accidental home fires in the 19th century. He doesn't have that male lineage. I mean, really, for the past 100 years, every single book, article, magazine published about Warren has claimed that all his direct descendants uh, became extinct in the late 19th century, which was absolutely not true. And let's, I want to hear more about that, but let's just, so introduce us to him. Where did he come from? Uh, What kind of family did he grow up in? So he comes from humble beginnings, and that's part of the amazing story behind it, is that someone who comes from a humble farm in Roxbury, which is one of the satellite communities of Boston at the time, rises to become a leader and one of these top echelon patriots in all these different circles, military, social, economic, political. So he's born in 1741. He's educated at Harvard. He becomes a doctor. And really his his rise to prominence begins during the 1764 smallpox outbreak. And Warren inoculates over 100 patients and not one of them dies. So when this smallpox Uh, scourge subsides, Warren and the other doctors who were involved in inoculating patients are hailed as heroes. And he really um, uses that smallpox inoculation success. It it brings him a legitimacy and an admiration that few people are enjoying at this time, and he uses it as a springboard into the political foray. I wonder, um, did he treat everyone? Was I mean, was he just... At what point did he kind of become a revolutionary who was staunchly against the British, and how did that impact his medical practice? Right, and it did impact the medical practice. That's a great question because Warren is treating every rung of the social ladder from slaves and sailors and prisoners all the way up to some of the most powerful people in the colony, some of the most powerful loyalist names like the Hutchinson family, the Hallowells, the Olivers, the Fluckers. And what happens is, is when you look at Joseph Warren's medical ledgers, those first years of his practice, he's basically treating everyone. He's treating patriots, he's treating loyalists. And this is really before the political controversy heats up. But as it does, when you look at all the primary source documents and his patients list, you realize that Warren is receiving so much financial patronage from these Tories, from these loyalists, that by all rights, he should have remained a loyalist, loyal to the crown. But incredibly, he casts his lot with these patriot Whigs, and in doing so, loses a lot of the financial patronage that they are providing him. So in in a sense, it's almost financial suicide that he casts his lot with the patriot Whigs. When And when does that happen? Is there a, a turning point when he decides, um, I, I'm turning against the British, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with the revolution, or I guess it's really not quite a revolution even at this point, but is there a single incident or is it just kind of a growing frustration? I think it's growing frustration. I believe there were several incidents that I mentioned in the book from when he was a child and from his ancestors that kind of pushed him in that direction. But 
incredibly, uh, I mean, his father dies when he's uh, 14 years old, when Warren is a freshman at Harvard. And so his really his his mentor becomes not only his medical mentor, but also his grandfather. Now, his medical mentor, Dr. Lloyd, is a staunch loyalist and will remain a staunch loyalist throughout the conflict. So, again, you know, when you look at all these factors, you say it's just incredible that he becomes this revolutionary because, again, all his activities, a lot of his social connections were so heavily tied to this to these loyalists and to these powerful Tories and in, in, in the colonies. And there really is no clear-cut, defined moment when he makes that leap. And I think what makes him such an interesting figure in, in early American history is that he has connections on both sides of the political divide. So both patriots and loyalists are seeing him as a valuable candidate to add to their ranks. And again, he ultimately casts his lot with these patriots. And, and in a very public way, um, he, he commemorates the Boston Massacre a year after it happens with a speech. Can you tell us a little bit about that speech and how it was received? Right. Well, I, I think the, the important thing is that Warren was in Boston on the day of the massacre. He is treating the victims and he's performing the autopsies. And he's also a part of a committee that writes a pamphlet called A Short Narrative of the Horrid Massacre in Boston. It's him and two of his friends, uh, Samuel Pemberton and a James Bodwin. And this really is a propaganda track to try and, and curry favor from the residents of Boston. It's meant to really uh, exonerate the citizens who were involved and really sort of paint the British uh, troops in a, in a negative light. And so Warren delivers two of these Boston massacre orations, one in 1772, and the following one he delivers is in 1775. And what's so incredible about the 1775 oration is that Warren delivers this voluntarily when British soldiers are threatening to execute whoever is going to deliver this massacre oration. And on the day he delivers it, 5,000 people pack Old South Meeting House, and the tensions are really high. We, you know, we have the benefit of hindsight to look back and say, oh, well, nothing happened that day. However, there was no guarantee that something wasn't going to happen, that he would not have been assassinated. And, and just, just to show you his incredible nerve, before he delivers that speech, he visits about five different patients before going to Old South Meeting House to deliver the speech. So it also shows you how dedicated he is to his medical profession and treating his patients. We ought to talk a little bit, just briefly, about his personal life, because he was a widower, right? How does that play yes. into this? Uh, where does that fall in the time period? And talk about his, his family he's trying to raise. Right. And, well, this was part of the challenging uh, issues with the project. And this is why there's only been a handful of Warren biographies in 250-some-odd years, because we don't have the benefit of these personal letters. He does not leave a paper trail. We don't have the hundreds of letters like that are written between John and Abigail Adams. So a lot of the biographies written about him really focus on his professional life. So one of my missions with this project was to really try and uncover more about his personal life. And I was able to uncover some things that had never been known before, and also with the benefit of uncovering the direct descendants, they were able to show me some of their family heirlooms, some of their family trees, primary source documents. And we discovered that Warren and his wife, Elizabeth, had actually five children, but one died in infancy. And his wife passes away in April of 1773 mm. and leaves him with four young children, the oldest of which is about 10 years old. So, And again, this is not uncommon at the time. A lot of uh, people do die young. There really was a high life expectancy. And so Warren becomes a widower, which is, again, it, it makes it an even more fascinating story that Warren is able to do everything he's doing, right? Run this medical practice, become the head of this intelligence network, all the while with four young children to raise. I'd like to talk about um, after the massacre, um, some of the other activities. You, you mentioned an intelligence um uh, committee, but also he was on a, a committee of correspondence. Can you mm -hmm. tell us what the significance of that was? 
Yeah, and this was important because really it's formed by himself and Samuel Adams, and what they're doing is trying to create an intra and inter uh, communication system between the colonies so that the colonies can act as a cohesive unit and keep everyone informed of of the events that are transpiring. And this kind of has a long history, like when the colonies were trying to be unified with the Stamp Act Congress back in 1765. But these committees of correspondence are so important because, again, it opens these lines of communication trying to build sort of a solidarity movement and unify these colonies into a cohesive unit. And it really at the helm of this was Samuel Adams and Joseph Warren. But again, history tends to focus on the role of Samuel Adams. And really, Warren sort of has remained in his shadow. And is it part of this um, committee of correspondence where he gets involved in actually publishing tracts that encourage the revolution? Warren was doing this early on, and he's writing under a variety of pseudonyms, such as a true patriot, uh, the initials B.W., Pascalos, and this is not uncommon for the time. Usually when people are writing articles or incendiary tracts, they're writing under a pseudonym, but but Joseph Warren is leading, really, it's, it's a it's a bitter, uh, verbal diatribe that he launches against the royal governor, Bernard, and, and his attacks really are successful in getting Bernard recalled back to London. So really, you know, Warren is cooking up these articles, and it becomes part of this patriot movement, the Sons of Liberty. And really, his his political mentor, yes, it is Samuel Adams, but it's a naive approach to think that when Warren does enter this orbit of Whig radicalism, that he's sort of this tabula rasa. When Warren enters this movement, he's already heavily entrenched in his radical philosophies. And yes, Samuel Adams helped bring him about, but Samuel Adams was not his first mentor, like I said, and to give Samuel Adams all the credit is really sort of to undermine Warren's role in this resistance movement. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Christian Despina. He's the author of Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Lost Hero. Uh, You mentioned earlier his connection to Paul Revere. Can you kind of explain his role in Paul Revere's famous ride? Yes, and well, you know, Revere and Warren are friends. They are actually not on the same uh, social footing. Warren is rungs above Revere on the social ladder, but Warren is providing Revere with a lot of uh, patronage, sending him on these rides. And really, that famous midnight ride is not the first ride that Warren dispatches Revere on. But on the night of April 18, 1775, Warren calls Revere and William Dawes to his medical office, telling them to alert the countryside that the British are on the move. And really, it's not the British, it's the Redcoats, because they're all British at that time, to alert them that they are on a mission to seize ammunition and cannon from the town of Concord. So again, when you really look at all these events, all these magnificent events that are transpiring in 1775, Warren is involved in every single one of them. And it's almost, it's almost incredible to me that we even call it Paul Revere's ride because it wasn't just Revere who was dispatched. It was William Dawes. And from that other riders are dispatched from that. But again, it's Warren's intelligence that sets off this shot heard around the world And when Warren hears that eight militiamen have been killed on Lexington Green, he actually ferries over to Charlestown and goes to participate in the fighting in Monotomy, which is modern-day Arlington. And Warren's almost killed when a musket ball knocks out his hairpin. So not only is Warren fighting against the British, he's tending to the wounded patriots, and it's his intelligence that set this off. But yet we remember Paul Revere and not Dr. Joseph Warren, who actually set all these events in motion. Mm -hmm. Because think about it. Had Warren not done this, would there have been a midnight ride? Would there have been a battle of Lexington and Concord? Would there have been a Bunker Hill? 
Yeah, but he is he is memorialized at the at the battle of at the Battle of Bunker Hill in a painting. I want you to describe it for us and tell us a little bit about it because people may actually have seen this painting. Right, and and what's amazing is that anytime uh, you know you see a lot of books on the American Revolution, that painting is usually the cover on many books about the American Revolution. But you actually see. Warren is at the center of the painting, and the rest of the painting is sort of shadowed, but there's this light on Warren, and he's sort of in a Pieta-like pose. And the painting is inaccurate. It's painted about a decade after the battle transpires, but it sort of immortalizes Warren as this martyr. And really, think about it, right after the Battle of Bunker Hill, Warren, like I said, becomes the first American martyr. And all the founding fathers know him because of the Suffolk Resolves. George Washington knew about this. And again, this this pivotal moment, this one day, which is really the first pitched battle of the American Revolution, Warren is killed. He's shot through the face when he's covering the retreat of his men. And he fights as a volunteer that day. He doesn't fight as a major general. And again, he's sort of immortalized from this painting that's painted by John Trumbull. And in the, in, the, in the painting, you've got the redcoats coming up the hill, and um, and apparently they um, they they were really severe with him. Um, can you can you kind of talk about about that? And um... right, and there's been some discrepancy over the years, but. We have the benefit of some primary source letters from both sides of the battle, right? From British sides, from the American sides. And there were two letters written referring to Warren being beheaded on the battlefield. And we don't know if he was beheaded. Chances are he was probably not beheaded. But what we do know is that his body was horribly mutilated on the battlefield. His clothing was stripped. All his personal possessions were taken, which included a family Bible, and he was buried in a shallow ditch about three feet deep. And he's left there throughout the siege of Boston. And really, once news of his death starts to spread, it's almost incredulous because people wouldn't believe that someone as important as he was would actually risk his life by going to the battlefield. So it so it starts to become so that so that is really unusual. I want to talk about that. Is that what you're saying? I mean, the painting by Trumbull depicts it that he is right in the heat of battle. Um, is is that unusual for him? Why it seems like he's kind of too important of a leader to be right there on the front lines. Right, and it's one of the things we can fault him for because his friends and comrades are imploring him not to go to the battle. That is too much of a risk. But again, you know, Warren has conducted himself throughout this this movement as a hands-on, on-the-ground leader, right? He's not just content to sit behind a desk. You know, he's doing it all, voice, pen, and sword. He's involved in the Battle of Lexington and Concord, where he's almost killed. He's involved in the skirmishes at Grapes and Noddles Island between April and June of 75. And then he goes off to battle, and he's offered command of the battle by both General Israel Putnam, Colonel William Prescott, and both times he declines and and says, just put me where the fighting is going to be the worst. And he fights side by side with these men who, when they see him, immediately start to cheer because they're thinking, wow, if if Joseph Warren is showing up here, we're going to be okay. There's almost like this aura of invincibility that has surrounded him in these past few months by surviving Lexington and Concord, by delivering this Boston masqueration in the face of, you know, threats of assassination. And really, had it just been a couple of minutes of a difference, he might have escaped that battle. And that's a question, you know, I always get, like, why don't we know more about him? And if he's as important as you say he is, why don't we know more about him? But you know, the one thing I can say is that, you know, he was he would have been just as important in the post-revolutionary era as he was in the decade preceding independence. And it's just, it's just tragic when he's killed and when you read the letters that are being written from the founding fathers at the Continental Congress in Philadelphia, once they receive news of his death, it's, it's actually it's absolutely heartbreaking. 
Christian Despina, author of Founding Martyr, The Life and Death of Dr. Joseph Warren, The American Revolution's Lost Hero. Some lesser-known heroes from the American Revolution this hour on our show. We're going to learn next about Lafayette. But wait, you say, he's well-known. No, not this Lafayette. And you'll catch on in just a moment as we continue with Constant Wonder. Lesser-known heroes of the American Revolution has been our theme this hour on Constant Wonder. We turn next to James Lafayette. Stephen Seals is a James Lafayette interpreter at Colonial Williamsburg, and he is also the Community Outreach Liaison and Program Development Manager there. Here's part of our conversation. There are two letters from the Marquis de Lafayette to George Washington where he talks about, um, and he keeps naming the person because, you know, it's spycraft, so you have to be very careful. But he says, my honest friend has gained this information. For instance, the, the letter about... Uh, Yorktown uh, for General Washington, the Marquis de Lafayette sends the letter, and he's basically saying, my honest friend who is serving Lord Cornwallis has found me this information, and, you know, this is what's happening. He's going to the town of, of York. So there are two different letters that have that information on it. But then you go to um, after the war, where... Uh, the Marquis de Lafayette goes back to France in 1781, uh, not long after Yorktown. Uh, James is not given his freedom by the um, House of Delegates in Virginia because they don't consider him a soldier, and they say that he volunteered. So he gets sent back to slavery, and in 1784, the Marquis de Lafayette returns to America, and he finds that James is still enslaved, and he writes a letter in his own hand, and it survives to this day, so you can actually Google search it and find it. But it is the Marquis de Lafayette's letter um, speak, telling the assembly what James has done for him, and it specifically says that he delivered um, correspondence to the enemy lines that, that helped in the winning of the war. So that's, that is the most direct document that we have from the hands of the Marquis de Lafayette signed in his own hand of what James did for him. Well, that's the clincher right there. I mean, that's not just in the hand of the Marquis de Lafayette, but it's an endorsement. It sounds like it's a ringing endorsement of this person made a huge contribution, and you you guys better understand this. Yes. Yes, and, and the Marquis de Lafayette knew exactly what he was doing. At that point in time, and probably for the next 40 years, the Marquis de Lafayette was the second most loved man in all of the United States, number one probably being George Washington. But when the Marquis de Lafayette, he didn't return back to America for another 40 years until 1824. But when he does, it is a year and a half of parties. Every city he goes to for that year and a half, they throw him a party, they they build him a carriage, they, you know, give him as much as he can drink. He's in his 60s, but they're still partying him like he's still in his 20s. And it's just amazing to to look at that information of how loved he was and the information that you find of him actually seeing James again in 1824 and recognizing who he is and showing affection to James. We actually have a newspaper article um, from Richmond that talks about uh, the Marquis de Lafayette in 1824, stopping his carriage, getting out and embracing this black man in the middle of the streets of Richmond um, because they had served together and were still considered each other to be great friends. And it's amazing to see that original newspaper article. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us, if you would, a little bit of something about uh, the M.O. that I understand that, that James was able to leverage his status as an enslaved person in, in uh, conducting his espionage. Yes. So the, the word that I would probably use to describe it would be the hubris of the British. The British really did think that because at one point they were the only side that was offering freedom uh, to enslaved individuals that, that fought for them. The Americans didn't do that until years into the war. But what the British thought was because they had already made this offer to the blacks of North British North America that they would 
come and serve them and that they would have nothing to worry about at all. They weren't particularly concerned that these individuals might not, you know, might see things in a, in a different manner. Uh, the more I think about it, when you, when you look at it, you know, until 1776, Americans considered themselves Britons. They, they were British, and they were very proud of being British. So I would think as an enslaved person looking at this, okay, they don't want to be British anymore, but they still have the same people who used to consider themselves Britons as being over me. I don't think they're really much different, and the British aren't really much different. So I can definitely see someone going, okay, what's going to be best for myself and my, and my family? And, and running off to the British means that I might find my freedom, but I'm not going to have my family with me. And I don't, I don't know about you, but freedom without my family, I don't, I don't know that, that's, that I could find happiness in that. And James, I have no doubt, knew that by serving the Marquis de Lafayette from the ways that Virginia law works, that that would probably be what they considered a quote-unquote meritorious service, and he could possibly gain his freedom through that. So it, it makes a lot of sense as to why uh, James would decide to serve the Marquis de Lafayette. But the British probably were not thinking that blacks at that point were thinking that deeply about it, but they were. Yeah, yeah. So is it possible, is it conceivable that British people with uh, some pretty important intelligence might have just been not very tight-lipped because they figure, (laughs) well, this isn't a white person. I can say what I want because it's not going to go anywhere anyway. Do you know what I mean? Is is that that a— Oh, yes. Yes. We, um, at work, um, at Colonial Williamsburg, we— or a lot of us will say, and I'll actually interpret this even when I'm in character, but the the enslaved of Williamsburg in a lot of ways, even at the time, were called the invisible people. Because in Williamsburg in uh, 1776, 52% of the population was black. So that means that every other face that you saw was was a black person and probably enslaved. But despite the fact that they were 52% of the population, they were, well, I mean, they were everywhere. We were everywhere, which meant that you couldn't have a conversation without one of us hearing it. And we interpret the fact that, you know, people share information. Blacks are going to share information with other blacks about what they've heard in these rooms where they're serving people and people are still having to have these conversations because they're having these important conversations, but they still want to be served, which means you're going to have to have someone in there pouring their drinks, getting their food, delivering their correspondence, and they're going to act like those people are insignificant because to them, they're insignificant. They're getting them what they need, but those individuals are hearing every single thing that's said and I cannot believe that that someone would be able to hear all of this information and not use it or share it, right? The actor Stephen Seals is a James Lafayette interpreter. He is community outreach liaison and program development manager at Colonial Williamsburg.